Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Oh, a very good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me today. We've got some great conversation ahead. Torah, Torah, Torah. This was the message from Mitsuo Fushida on the morning of December 7th, 1941. He was informing Japanese commanders that the attack on Pearl Harbor was about to begin. Americans were completely unprepared. Commander Fushida was the pilot responsible for coordinating the aerial attack, and he became a hero uh, in his home country of Japan. But due to an extraordinary series of circumstances after the war, he becomes a Christian missionary. T. Martin Bennett tells the story. In Wounded Tiger, the true story of a pilot who led the Pearl Harbor raid. He's joining me in the second hour of today's program. We also take time to remember uh, the venerable father of modern genetics, Jerome Lejeune. Uh, This is a remarkable man, uh, a a path, a a groundbreaking uh, geneticist, whose name, unfortunately, is overlooked because of his pro-life convictions. We're going to talk about this man, his professional accomplishments, but also his cultivation of virtue and why we call him the venerable Jerome Lejeune. Also, uh, it turns out that yesterday was the 100th anniversary of the death of Vladimir Lenin, leader of the Bolsheviks, first head of the government of the Soviet Union, Lots of myths have grown up around him about his beliefs, his intentions, his ideology. Paul Kengor is going to look at the real Lenin and draw a line from Lenin's philosophy of life to what we see in American political debate today among the democratic socialists. So stay with me. We've got a lot coming up. But first, what we do as we go to the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, January 22nd. It's the Feast of St. Vincent Pilati. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. Pope Francis is calling for the release of a group of people, including six nuns kidnapped in Haiti. Armed gunmen took the group hostage Friday during a bus hijacking in Port-au-Prince. The 87-year-old pontiff also prayed for peace in the country. Later in the day, the Pope making a reference to the recent violence in Ecuador, telling the crowd in St. Peter's Square that he's praying for peace in that country as well. He was once figured to be Donald Trump's toughest challenger for the Republican presidential nomination. Today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is out of the running before the New Hampshire primary. I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. DeSantis was polling in single digits ahead of Tuesday's key New Hampshire primary. The GOP race is now a two-person battle between Trump and Nikki Haley, 
who served as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. during the Trump administration. President Biden is honoring two Navy SEALs who are presumed dead after gone missing off the coast of Somalia. One fell into rough waters and the other jumped in to rescue him during a special mission to seize Iranian missile parts headed to Yemen. The FAA is issuing a new safety alert recommending inspections on more Boeing jets. The alert suggested airlines look deeper into door plugs. The FAA noting the jet uses an identical door plug design to the 737 MAX. This comes after a panel came off an Alaska Airlines flight in midair from a loose door plug. And it now costs a little bit more to send letters in the mail. Over the weekend, the U.S. Postal Service increased the cost of a first-class forever U.S. postage stamp from 66 to 68 cents. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me. Uh, just uh, a, a few years ago, Tom Perez, who was uh, acting uh, chair of the Democratic National Committee, uh, said that Democratic socialists like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders represented the future of the party. And we are now looking at 100 years since the death of Vladimir Lenin, leader of the Bolsheviks and the first head of the government of the Soviet Union. Is there a line that can be drawn from Vladimir Lenin to today's democratic socialists? Join me right now to explore this and also give us a good lesson on what Vladimir Lenin actually taught and believed is Dr. Paul Kengor, author of several books, most recently The Worst of Indignities, The Catholic Church on Slavery. His other books include The Devil and Belladad, The Devil and Karl Marx, uh, Dupes, How America's Adversaries Have Manipulated Progressives for a Century, and A Pope and a President, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the Extraordinary Untold Story of the 20th Century. He is a professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and a senior academic fellow at the Institute for Faith and Freedom, and also an editor at the American Spectator. Paul, good to have you back. Thanks. Yeah, always good to be with you. Thanks. Let's let's go. Let's do this. Um, so if I if I run into uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and I say. You know, democratic socialists are playing with fire here. Um, you know, you, you've been influenced by, of course, the thinking of Karl Marx, uh, Vladimir Lenin, uh, Joseph Stalin. She would say, absolutely not. I have nothing to do with Lenin. I have nothing to do with Stalin. Uh, she might even say she has nothing to do with Marx. I don't know. But what is the... Obviously, there's a... There's a line of ideas uh, that go from Marx to democratic socialists through Lenin. Um, what do you say to somebody like her? Well, it's a good question, Al. And I mean, so it depends on who you're talking to with the democratic socialists of America, right? So, so that's the group that's out there. They are, they are where the action is on socialism today. In fact, um, you know, the traditional American Communist Party, which is called Communist Party USA, um, their website is cpusa.org. They have only about, probably about 5,000, 6,000 members. That's it. 
yeah. right? And they're the original sort of, you know, American heirs to Lenin. Sure. Now, the group, yeah, the group where all the growth is going on is indeed um, AOC's group, the Democratic Socialists of America. And they have about 100,000 members, and they continue to grow. They've got chapters on, on hundreds of campuses, and, and I follow them. And I could tell you, you know, they have, like, Mark's reading groups. Okay. <laughs> you know, they, you know, they, you know, they have – so there, there are certain people – among the democratic socialists who are true blue socialists right yeah. uh, and, and like take bernie sanders right bernie okay bernie's really complicated he's not a member of the democratic socialists of america he knows better than that um he um, he's not even a democrat actually he's an independent right and yet you know, james carville was saying about four or five years ago you know carville was saying that bernie's not even a democrat right <laughs> what's going he's not even a democrat right and and, and he wasn't it's now bernie's party that he never actually joined because he was smart enough not to join um, was the Socialist Workers' Party, the Trotskyist Socialist Workers' Party. Okay. And he was an actual formal presidential elector to the Socialist Workers' Party. So, like, Bernie, for example, would be a true blue socialist. Now, he'd be afraid to admit it publicly because he's running for office as a Democrat. Right. Um, but he knows it. The socialists who vote for him know it. Now, on the other hand, a lot of the people in the Democratic Socialists of America, like AOC, um, I, I think some of them are oblivious to, to the realities of, of that, and she would probably claim, I, I'm guessing, right, she'd probably say, well, I'm not a socialist, I'm a democratic socialist. Right, they, right. Yeah, that, that's a good socialist. Now, now, Lenin, and I guarantee you she doesn't know this, she wouldn't have learned it at, um, at the college, I think she went to Boston University, uh, but but Lenin supported democracy, and and Lenin said um, democracy. Of course, we support democracy. What is democracy? Democracy means equality, right? As right. he put it. And um, yeah. Bella Dodd, who you and I have talked about a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Bella Dodd, who was probably probably the most prominent uh, female ex-communist in America, kind of like uh, a, a female Whitaker Chambers. Yeah. She used to say, Al, she would say, oh, democracy. They talk about democracy all the time, meaning the communists, right? Democracy, democracy, democracy. Oh, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and, and she said for them, democracy means economic democracy. It means economic equality. Yeah. So, so you know, beware the kind of um, far leftist <laughs> who's out there talking about democracy, because we hear this and we think, Oh, democracy! Oh, yeah! Hey, oh, yeah! It's got to be fine. Madison, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Thomas right. Jefferson, American founders, right? Freedom of speech, press, religion, assembly, First Amendment. But economic. But, but when these people, economic yeah. democracy, though, is something that has to be imposed, doesn't it? That's exactly right. Because because how could you get full economic democracy? And by that, certainly people like Lenin and traditional socialists and communists meant a full, total, equal distribution of wealth. Now, actually, what they really meant was for 90 to 99 percent of the population, and then the top 1 to 10 percent would be worth millions of dollars, right? So, you know, socialism and communism is for the ruled. It's not not for the rulers, right? (laughs) There's always exceptions made for them. But in order to even get, you know, 90 percent of people getting paid the same, the only way to do that 
is is at the tip of the bayonet. Um, it, it would be you know, a, a government that is entrenched and not up for re-election because it wouldn't get re-elected. That would have you know ninety to ninety-nine percent tax rates to have full income leveling. Mm. So so you'd have to have the force, the fiat of the state, to even get that in place to 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 you know to 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 begin with. Yeah, yeah. You know, let's let's talk about Lenin himself. Uh, tell me a little bit about his upbringing and how did he, I mean, he becomes a, really a rabid materialist. And I'm just curious why he's an anti-theist, um, hates religion in all its forms. How's he get that way? Yeah, it's a good question. And by the way, I, I commend you for speaking on uh, having me on. It is indeed the hundredth anniversary of his death, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. January twenty twenty four. Yeah, I, did, I didn't even notice that. Shame on me for, uh, <laughs> for not <laughs> not noticing. By the way, his um, the hundredth anniversary of his death is uh, is is it was the first Earth Day oh. in America. So Earth Day is always marked on the anniversary of of Lenin's death. <laughs> So he is, um, and that's, um, some people wonder if there's a coincidence there, because a lot of the environmentalists are have been referred to as watermelons, uh, you know, green on the outside or pink or red on the inside, right? <laughs> um, but, but, but Lenin, yeah, so Lenin was born, um, I think 1870, roughly, it's off the top of my head, and, and he came from a, from a pretty traditional family, and at a t- for a time in his life was a Christian. And really? he, he said, yeah, he, he said uh, at one point, he said, as a teen, I broke with religion as a teen. I ripped off my cross and I threw it in the rubbish bin. I threw it in oh. the rubbish bin, as he put it. So, so he has this sharp breakaway from religion, uh, as did Stalin, as did Trotsky. I mean, Stalin had been, Stalin was born... Um, about the same time, I think almost the same year as Lenin. He died uh, March 5th, 1953, I think. It's off the top of my head. So he lived a, lived a lot longer. But Stalin had been raised by this this pious Russian Orthodox mother, Ekaterina was her name, who was um, abused by her husband. She sent her son off to a, uh, a private parochial school. Stalin got a, a scholarship to go to seminary went to a very kind of progressive liberal seminary that was infused with evolutionary thought in particular, mm-hmm. gets expelled from seminary. So you know, there, there you have Lenin and Stalin, both ex-Christians, yeah. now anti-Christian, who have become these radical, militant, secular atheists, um, you know, like Marx, like uh, Ingalls. Ingalls had a very similar background. So did Marx. I mean, Marx, although he was um, Jewish— uh, converted to Christianity at a very young age, and then left Christianity when he went to college. So and all of these, all of these men had that that Christian background, and they see they see religion as an an active force that they have to dispel. Yes, yeah, right. And and Lenin said. Everyone must be absolutely to everyone. This is a direct quote. Everyone must be absolutely free to be an atheist, which every socialist is as a rule. Well, wow. that's how he put it. Okay. So for um, Catholics listening right now who are thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm a socialist, but I'm a Catholic, too. 
uh, Lenin would have said, no, that's impossible. Yeah. You, 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 yeah. you, you can't be. By the way, the, the church says that that's impossible, too. Look at Quadra J.C. Milano, for example, right? No one can call, themselves, uh, can, can call himself a Christian and a socialist, yeah. a Catholic or a socialist. And Lenin also said, quote, complete separation of church and state is what the socialist proletariat demands of the modern state and the modern church. Religion must be declared a private affair. Um, so, so he wanted a complete separation of, of, of religion from, from public life, but, but more than that, and here's where it gets really bad with Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky and the Bolsheviks, they go from this position of sort of irreligion or even religious neutrality or separation of church and state to, to militant, aggressive atheism, where, where they, they declare, as Mikhail Gorbachev put it, a wholesale war against religion. Okay. So, so they get to a point where they say, no, it's not enough to just say people shouldn't be re- religious. We're going to make you forcibly leave religion, or, or you're going off to the gulags. You're going off to the concentration camps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is I think, it's hard for us uh, in the United States to understand uh, that kind of overt hostility uh, applied through the instrumentality of the state. And... Um, you know, we're, what we see is we see kind of a soft secularism, um, uh, which, uh, again, is growing, it seems to me. But that is still different than the harsh... Hostility. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right. I hear the music coming up, Paul. Hang in there. We'll take a break. We'll sure. come back on the other side and continue conversation. My guest, Dr. Paul Kangor... Uh, Today, or yesterday actually, was the 100th anniversary of the death of Vladimir Lenin. And I thought we'd use this as an opportunity to talk about Lenin, communism, socialism, in our political scene today. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology? I say, I'm scared of what I don't say. If I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well, if I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith, I'm going to be held accountable, as is any one of us who has a platform. And we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different. But every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize. And we make be fearful but we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Can a priest ever reveal what he has heard in confession? No, he cannot, the Catechism firmly states. Due to the delicacy and greatness of this ministry and the respect due to persons, The Church declares that the priest must keep all he hears under the seal of the sacrament. Under no circumstances may he disclose what he has heard in confession. Were he to do so, he would face severe Church penalties. When he is celebrating the sacrament of penance, the priest is fulfilling the ministry of the Good Shepherd seeking the lost sheep, the Good Samaritan who binds up the wounds, the Merciful Father who welcomes home the Prodigal Son, and the impartial judge whose judgment is just and merciful. The confessor is the servant 
not the master of God's forgiveness, leading the penitent to maturity and healing. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. Once declared it was pride that changed angels into devils, it is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christian in College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. A hundred years ago yesterday, the arch-Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin died. Uh, It was 1924, uh, his death. Many many myths have grown up around his beliefs. And um, what's interesting is that they normally, the stories that grew up surrounding him, Try to try to shave off the rough edges, um, and I, I, it always it always fascinates me um, when people avoid going to a person's direct statements. You know, um, we have a way of kind of um, kind of sanitizing figures in the past. Uh, I want to go hear what the person said himself, what he wrote himself. And with Lenin, he is, he is a committed atheist. He is a militant atheist. He has broken sharply with all questions of religion. As Paul said last segment, uh, when he was a teenager, he said, I took off my cross and threw it in the rubbish bin. And we're taking a look at the consequences of that kind of intellectual leadership. And that's why it's, it, it's kind of galling to hear people talk about democratic socialism in America today without recognition uh, of this, the history of socialism and communism. Um, 
Paul, when Lenin, Lenin made it, when he finally got back to Russia, uh, the Tsar was still, as I understand it, uh, active. What did, what did Lenin have to do to finally come and, and become the primary uh, leader of the Bolsheviks? Yeah, it was kind of a shocking thing. In fact, it reminds me a lot of the fall of Chiang Kai-shek in China in the late 1940s. When So you end up in a civil war in China from 1946 to 49 between Chiang Kai-shek and what was called his KMT, his Kuomintang forces against Mao and his communist revolutionaries. And Mao and his revolutionaries were the minority by far, yeah. right? Yeah. Not even close. And they fight this three-year civil war, and then somehow in 1949, the, the, the Chinese communists somehow win. It was just, like, unthinkable. Yeah. And almost the exact same thing happened in, in, in Russia. I mean, I shouldn't say almost the exact, because you know, in many ways they're very, very different. But, but Lenin comes back in 1917, um, right at the time that the Tsar abdicates, right after the Tsar abdicating. Um, it, it, the Tsar the, the abdicated around February, March 1917. Okay. And when that happened, the German high command in World War One, which is looking for a way to, um, to, to somehow get Russia out of the war, well, America under Woodrow Wilson declared war in, in April 1917. And so that part, the German high command, which has the ability to allow Lenin to come through to get to Russia, you know, they put him in a boxcar. They allowed him transportation into Russia, and it was like 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 dropping a neutron bomb in <laughs> in, in the middle of Russia. In fact, Winston oh. Churchill called it a plague bacillus. Wow, as he put it, be, you know, being being you know let go onto the like this this cancer, this plague that would take over the you know the Russian country the the rush the russian body politic and the germans so, wanted that so, because they wanted russia out of the war that's exactly right yeah. and general ludendorff yeah who was the right hand man to to the kaiser said um it, you know, it, people said are you concerned about this he said no no i will let lenin and his revolutionaries go and take down the czar and then i will strangle i will strangle lenin and all of his friends <laughs> and yeah but that's not what happened right <laughs> So instead, there's this Bolshevik Revolution, October, November 1917, and it's followed by, like with the Chinese Civil War, a Russian Civil War that goes from 1918 to 21 between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. About 7 million, Al, 7 million Russian men, women, and children died wow. in that war. 7 million. Wow. I mean, we lost about, America lost about three, 400,000 men in all of World War II. I mean, the Russians just have this, the death that has yeah. happened in Russia, yeah, yeah it's, it's just, it's unparalleled. Yeah. So, so he takes over, and one of the first things that he did once he took over was went from, as we were talking about in the last segment, this, um, this dislike of religion to this hostility of re religion to this war on religion. And, and he said... Uh, there is nothing more abominable than religion. Now imagine that statement, right? Yeah. There is nothing more abominable than religion, said Lenin. All worship of a divinity is a necrophilia. <laughs> That's how he saw it. He called he called it he said Marx called it the opium of the people, which it is. And then he said religion is a sort of spiritual booze. <laughs> 
booze. <laughs> wow. He called it medieval mildew. By the way, Bella Dodd talked about how one of her professors at Hunter College in New York re- referred to religion as this, like, medieval mildew. Kind of same thing, right? <laughs> so, so, they, so they immediately aggressively go after religion. They start closing churches. The only ones that are left open are often converted into museums to atheism. They round up religious believers, priests. Uh, you know, they 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 ban baptisms. Uh, priests are banned from hospitals, funerals. Uh, you name it. And wow. and really, there's been hardly anything like it in history where you saw this sort of sustained aggression against against religion. I mean, we saw it in the with the Jacobins in the French Revolution, 1793-1794, um, for a short period. But this would go on in, in Russia for you know, three-quarters of a century until Mikhail Gorbachev in the late 1980s finally called off the war against religion. Yeah, yeah. I, you, you really wonder what drives, what drives a person to have that degree of hostility against um, a faith which, uh, you know, contains the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. I mean, what, right. what, is, right. what is it that uh, he—I mean, he, I mean, he could have just said—you could have just said, well, look, let religious people do what they want to do. Keep it, it's private. Uh, it won't have any public consequences to it. Uh, let them just keep their religion in the Church— but they weren't satisfied with that. They had to wipe it out, like, right. it, like as though it were some sort of disease. That's right. And in fact, that's what Mussolini said, right? Uh, you know, M- Mussolini thought, um, you know, if, if I want to get along, if I want my people to like me, if I don't want to rock the boat too much, you know, I'll let the church exist. You know, I'll let people go, go to their churches. Uh, Paul Johnson, the late great British historian, yeah, yeah, said the difference. Be, yeah, the difference between Mussolini and Lenin is that Mussolini had the humanity and the longing to be loved that <laughs> that, that Lenin didn't have. Right? Lenin, yeah, Lenin was this angry, vicious little devil of a man. Yeah, um, Peter Struve, who who knew Lenin, um, Richard Pipes, who studied the Lenin letters. Uh, Peter Struve said the principal animating feature in Lenin's life was hatred. He hated people. He was he was this man wow. this man who was filled with hate. So we actually so have letters. Religion. We have letters of Lenin. We do. And and Pipes, Richard Pipes, who had started teaching at Harvard around 1950, he was this Harvard um, professor of Russian history until he died. Boy, just a few years yeah, ago, I think right. about three or three or four three or four years ago. He was given the task in the 1990s by the Boris Yeltsin government of going through the, the Soviet archives and digging up the Lenin letters. And when he went through it, he found these original letters from Lenin saying things like, um, take a thousand kulaks. You know, these were like the, 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 the land-owning farmers, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Take a thousand kulaks. Um, you know, bloodsuckers, leeches, parasites, vampires. He's calling them all these horrible names, wow. right? Hang them. Hang them without fail so that for millions or for hundreds of kilometers around, they will shout, they will scream. Uh, they, they're strangling. They're strangling the blood-sucking kulaks. You know, wow. yours, Lenin. 
uh, giving all these orders about lining up people, shooting them. There's actually crueler, more vitriolic letters from Lenin than from Stalin um, or or probably any other figure. Yeah, Yeah. he was just an awful man. And your question, why would somebody feel this way and be this possessed of all of it? I mean, I'd say from a spiritual perspective and from the perspective of our church, it was satanic. It's diabolical. and It it really looks that way, yeah. Right. Uh, and our church said that. I mean, Divinity, Divinity Redemptoris, the church encyclical yeah. in 1937, right? And it referred to communism as a satanic scourge. Yeah. And I, I, did, I did a book called The Devil and Karl Marx, yep. where I talked about Marx's fascination with the devil, the poetry that he, that, he, that he wrote about the devil. So there was this genuine, diabolical, evil streak underlying all of this, uh, the church, the church said in, in that in that encyclical, uh, the the um, the enemy that we face is not of the earthly order, but of the spiritual order, and and the emanations of Marxist Marxist thought flow with satanic logic. The, uh, that's that's how Pope Pius the Eleventh put it. Oh. It's um, so it it defies rational explanation. Mm-hmm. It only makes sense if you understand, as we do as Catholics that there's good and evil in, in the world, that the devil exists, and that this is an evil of the spiritual order. Yeah. Makes you wonder why America Magazine, uh, a few years ago, ran a piece huh. on, um, you know, what's basically what's right about communism. Yeah, it was called The Catholic Case for Communism. Yeah. And it ran, I think it was the summer of 2019 or 2020. And, in fact, I, I, I believe I did your show then, and I think Bryant, had uh, called me or texted me. I was. I remember this, Al. I was vacationing in New Jersey, okay. and, and and it said, uh, "You won't believe this. Um, look at this article at America Magazine." And 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 I, I looked at it and I said, "I, I just can't believe this. Oh. The Catholic case for communism." Yeah. I mean, what are they going to do next? You know, the Catholic case for atheism? Yeah, right. The Catholic case for Satanism? Right? There's, there is no Catholic case for communism. What, we, what are they talking about? We think we can redefine these things to our liking, <laughs> that we can somehow eliminate the the historical record. <laughs> I, it's, it is crazy. It's, it's madness. And all we could, well, you and I, I think, are, we're helping ourselves by laughing at this. Yeah, because it, it's just. It, otherwise, you just sit around and cry yeah. about it. No, it's absurd. Paul, thanks so much. Great talking with you again. <laughs> All right, <laughs> hey, take it easy. Yeah, same here, Dr. Paul Kengor. Again, uh, we have his books available in the online bookstore. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with a book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney. 
accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. Are you experiencing spiritual desolation? Are you considering changing a spiritual decision that you made before the experience of spiritual desolation began? St. Ignatius of Loyola gives guidance in the fifth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits. St. Ignatius is clear, in time of desolation, never make a change, but be firm and constant. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The tactic of the enemy in the darkness of spiritual desolation is to suggest that we reverse the decisions made in preceding times of light. Into this trap, says Ignatius, we must never fall. Rather, we must remain firm and constant in such proposals through the time of spiritual desolation. Spiritual desolation is a time that calls us to constancy and fidelity. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Do you ever wish you had more breaks from the daily demands of kids, chores, and work? Getting time for yourself is important, but a better way to stave off parental burnout is by examining how we manage our daily stress. Ask yourself this. Are you able to ask for help from your family, or do you just passively, and maybe resentfully, meet everyone else's demands? Do you have routines that create a good flow in your day, or do you find yourself constantly running from one mini-crisis to the next? The Liturgy of Domestic Church Life helps families create relationships, routines, and rituals that tame the craziness, make life easier on everyone, especially mom and dad. And when you do get a break, you'll be able to enjoy it more, too. To learn more about the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. 2023 had a number of really intriguing business and economic stories, which uh, we haven't talked about. Uh, With me right now to talk about those top news stories of 2023 in the world of business and economics, we're pleased to have with us Chad Garcia. 
Chad is Vice President of Schwartz Investment Council, Inc., and Lead Portfolio Manager of the Ave Maria Focused Fund and Co-Portfolio Manager of the Ave Maria Growth Fund. He's also responsible for equity research functions for the firm, and previously, Chad analyzed public equities as a managing director at SQ Advisors. Before that, he worked in private equity as a managing director at Gulf Coast Capital Partners and as Vice President at Combest Partners. Chad, good to have you back here. Thanks. Nice to be with you. So we've got a number of stories from 2023, and why don't we start with the the way artificial intelligence hit mainstream, uh, began to hit mainstream business. Yeah, AI or artificial intelligence has been around for a long time, but the application chat GPD came out, and yep. you know, everybody started using it. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, who's been, who's... Again, is there what kind of businesses are, will find artificial intelligence especially valuable? Is there any particular type of work, type of you know uh, investment uh, firms that might find AI especially valuable? I think processes and businesses that can that are computational focused and and repeatable can be outsourced to AI pretty easily. I think parts of business that have judgment involved will be difficult for AI to okay. to to affect or replicate. So I I think it might just make a lot of people's lives easier if you know if you, if judgment is involved and you know, that's part of your work. You can outsource a lot of the kind of the busier work that's less value added for for a, a white collar worker who you know uses a lot of judgment in their job, okay. such as an investor like myself. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I think that AI could help fill out spreadsheets for me and, and make my life easier and more convenient, but I don't think it can replace the judgment of a good investor. Yeah, very good. Um, it, it, NVIDIA took advantage of artificial intelligence uh, last year. What, what, what did they do? And NVIDIA is a, a company that, that makes uh, the, the chips, the microchips, or in, in NVIDIA's case, the graphic processing units that power AI. And you know that company has, has done quite well last year. The stock was up over 200%. This year, it's up 20%. So oh. NVIDIA... Is doing quite well, and, and it became the first chip maker to surpass one trillion dollar market cap. Huh. Wow. Okay. Um, is there? A, I looked at some of the notes that you sent me. Is there really a search for a killer app that everyone will use? You know, a lot of people are using Chat GPT, but I, I don't think that we're we're to the point where. You know, there's there's one killer app that's going to drive massive change throughout the you know, telecommunications infrastructure. So, mm-hmm. if we got to the point where cars were self-driving, then that would require you know, massive data center infrastructure builds out that would be data centers that would be close to the drivers. It would require our cell phone networks to be able to handle massive amounts of, of, of broadband, and so it would require you know, a large infrastructure build. Okay. And I think you're starting to see that a little bit in the data centers that house AI, 
the demand for these these types of data centers, and it's a very specific type of data center. And if you look at the NVIDIA chip, one NVIDIA chip takes as much power as electric toaster. And so <laughs> these data centers are that, that can house AI are power hungry and they generate a lot of heat. And so if you look at the data centers around the country, there, there's very few that handle them. The demand there has been insatiable. Hmm. Okay. Now, is Zavi Maria Funds doing anything with AI? Well, we we take what we call what I like to call the pick and shovel approach. So we're not betting on companies that that have AI technology or software firms, but we do invest in companies that can facilitate that. So the Zavi Maria Growth Fund has a position in, in Nvidia. Okay. Uh, several of our other funds have positions in companies that have those data centers like the ones I, I discussed. Okay. Okay. Let me jump to another another area, and that is uh, regional bank failures uh, setting off a crisis uh, last year. What happened? Yeah, that was a little scary. Uh, well, the interest rates have, have gone up rapidly, you know, as, as the Fed wanted the, that to occur, you know, given their tightening. And, you know, the rising interest rates and some bad risk management practices on behalf of some of the banks sparked a run first on Silicon Valley Bank as customers pulled about $40 billion over their deposits in, in a matter of hours. Wow. That led the uh, federal government to seize the bank. And then following that, a handful of other banks, First Republic, Signature Bank in the U.S., met, the, met their demise. And then Credit Suisse in Switzerland, you know, did as well. I... Why? What didn't What didn't they see coming? Well, they had a mismatch between a, a, what we call duration mismatch between their liabilities and their assets, okay. and so the assets of a bank are the customer's deposits, mm-hmm. and those can be short-term in nature if, if they run out the door. Right, and when the Fed raised its rates. Uh, the bank were looking for yield, and they, what they did was they bought treasuries that were long dated. And when the interest rates went up, the long dated treasuries that they held, the price went down dramatically, and you know, that sparked the fears that the banks could be you know, okay, you know, impaired. Do the Ave Maria funds? Uh own any banks? Uh, across all of our funds, maybe we have two banks in our holdings. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's not a, it's not a, well, I don't think we think banks are the best business models. There, there are a couple of banks that we have, and there's probably some specific reasons why those banks are, are, are special. Uh, the focus fund and the, and the growth fund, we don't hold any banks. Okay. Okay. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried convicted of fraud. That was a big story last year. Uh, is, is he really a bad guy? Well, I don't want to pass judgment on, on <laughs> him as a person, but I know what his, I know what his actions were. Okay, yeah. actions. talk about his crime then, yeah. Yeah, well, so Sam Bankman-Fried founded FTX, was a, which was a cryptocurrency exchange. So kind of think about owning a casino. And if you own a casino, that's a, that's a pretty good business. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what his problem was, was he also gambled in the casino that he owned, and he did so frequently with his client's money, and, that, mm. and that's where the fraud came involved. I mean, okay. what's, 
what's uh, what's tragic is that you know the the business FTX the exchange part was a good business it was one time it was valued at twenty billion dollars but because of of the fraud that he committed it was you know it went went to zero yeah yeah uh, is this is this a judgment on cryptocurrency in general well there's there's been a lot of of fraud involved in, in several of the exchanges, but uh, you know, thus far it hasn't cooled down any of the speculation in cryptocurrencies. Okay. Uh, talk to me about China and what we're what we know about their business relationship with the United States at this time. Well, the, the business relationship with the United States has been you know, impaired over the last six or so years. Um, but you know that that leads China into some problems. I mean, they're having a little, they're having a tough time. Aside from the strained relationships with the, with U.S. business community, I mean, China has a, has a zero COVID policy, so they have lockdowns going on. That's slowing down their 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 economy. They have a real estate bubble that's that's bursting, and so you know their their economy is not in the in the best shape. And they uh, they're leader Xi Jinping came to the US in an effort to you know reestablish relationships or you know warm up relationships with the US government and the US business community and I, I don't think the US business community is is ready to throw the talent on China I mean, China is an important partner to several US businesses but you know that said reshoring or friendshoring is, is happening and, and people are certain to move critical parts of their supply chain closer to home. Mm. Uh, do Yavimir funds have much uh, to do with the uh, uh, business in China? We don't have any direct investments in in Chinese companies, but some of our holdings, you know, obviously do business there, mm-hmm. you know, source goods there, or sell products, you know, have some operations in China, but we don't own any Chinese companies. Okay. Okay. Um, Last year, interest rates uh, for the U.S. 10-year bond started at 3.56%, peaked at 4.92 in October, now around 4.04. Is that dangerous? Well, the uh, rates are around, you know, where the historical averages so i don't i don't think this level of of interest rates are are, are dangerous at okay. all they're about the same rate they were when i graduated from business school almost 20 years ago okay. and you know much 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 lower than uh than you know when i was uh was in was in grade school in the in the early 80s and so i don't think that's i don't think they're dangerously high what was um you know, what's different just as, a, as, as the rate that they went from zero to, you know, 5%. That was that was pretty pretty quickly. And, yeah. Yeah, you know, a lot of the things that we talked about earlier with, with some of the banks. But um, it, it looks like the, the, the Fed has has orchestrated a, a soft landing. You know, the economy is still going strong. Inflation is is cooling. And so, you know, hof- hopefully the, they, they have orchestrated a soft landing. Okay. It looks like... They want to lower the interest rates, you know, three times this year. You know, each time they they make a decision to do that, it'll be data dependent, so they'll be looking at updated data. 
my gut tells me that they don't want to look political and do it later in the year where mm-hmm. it may seem to influence presidential elections. So, yeah. you know, maybe if they do them, they will happen earlier in the year. Uh, where are we inflation-wise? Well, anecdotally, from what I hear from companies that are reporting, uh, you know, inflation is, is, is cooling um, at, at most of them. The, the two parts of inflation that are still a little persistent are, is, would be uh, wages and, you know, the unemployment levels are low. So, you know, it makes sense that there's still some inf- issues with wage inflation. And then the other one would be would be housing. But other than those two items, inflation is coming down quite a bit. Okay. Uh, we got about a minute and a half left. How have the Alvin Maria funds been doing? Well, we had a great year in 2023. I mean, looking at the at the focus fund, which which I run, that was up 38.7 percent in 23. Oh, oh. He gets. And uh, its benchmark was up 17.5 percent. So we we more than doubled it. So we're Ooh. quite proud of that. And yeah, you should. It be. was uh, recognized by the Wall Street Journal six times as a as a category king last year. So Beautiful. that was nice to see. Uh, the growth fund was was up 30 percent and. Yeah, its wow. benchmark is the S and P 500, and that was up 26 percent. And you know what's interesting is that the S and P was driven by the top 10 holdings, you know, which are for the most part large cap technology stocks. And mm-hmm. you know we can't own most of those. And so you know, Adam, my my colleague, you know, beat the S and P without benefiting for the most part, you know, with the exception of Nvidia, from you know a lot of the companies that have really driven the S&P 500's return. Wow. That's that's wonderful. Um, you're expecting a good year this year? I am. I look at the companies in our, in our funds, and I'm pretty excited for their future. How do people get a hold of you, Chad, and uh, follow what, your work, what you're doing? Sure. They can give us a call at 866-AVE-MARIA or find us on the Internet at AveMariaFunds.com. Very good. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Ave Maria Funds and shortsinvestment.com. Again, one of our sponsors, uh, the Ave Maria Funds. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does this strange beatitude mean? Well, Father Victor Feltz points out that George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life embodies this beatitude. He has to sacrifice his bucket list items and his dreams in order to save the building and loan company of Bedford Falls. But by the end of the movie, he realizes that he's truly the richest man in town. The Beatitudes challenge our understanding of happiness both as individuals and as a society. They're paradoxical and they upend our priorities. We don't need anyone to tell us that good fortune, money, and success do often make us happy. But we wouldn't have thought that the road to riches in God's kingdom is paved with meekness. It doesn't mean denying your gifts, but it does challenge us to allow others to have the spotlight and to approach them with gentleness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Last week on Ave Maria Radio's Pull of the Week, we celebrated All Saints Day by asking you to choose your favorite saint. The most popular by far was St. Joseph with more than 30% of the vote. Coming up in second, we had St. Maria Goretti and also receiving votes St. Peter, St. Patrick, St. John Paul the Great, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and St. Michael the Archangel. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the poll of the week. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Yeah, that follow-up, uh, a conversation with Chad had some incredible uh, news in it. Uh, the remarkable success of the Ave Maria funds. Uh, you can call, uh, again, 866-AVE-MARIA for more information. Also, it's easy to find just uh, Google Ave Maria funds. Coming up next hour, a stunning story. It's called Wounded Tiger. It's uh, The story is told by T. Martin Bennett, and it's about the pilot who led the Pearl Harbor attack. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. Torah, Torah, Torah. This was the message that came from Mitsuo Fushida on the morning of December 7, 1941, as Pearl Harbor was being attacked. Those words informed Japanese commanders that the attack on Pearl Harbor was about to begin Of course, the Americans were completely unprepared. Commander Fushida was the pilot responsible for coordinating the aerial attack. He became a hero, of course, in Japan. But due to an extraordinary series of circumstances after the war, he eventually becomes a Christian missionary. My guest, T. Martin Bennett, has authored Wounded Tiger. It's really the remarkable story uh, behind uh, the lives of uh, people like uh, Commander Fushido and a number of others, um, I think you'll find it fascinating. It's the kind of story that you can hope will eventually be made into a movie. Uh, But in the meantime, you can get the story in Wounded Tiger, the true story of the pilot who led the Pearl Harbor attack, whose life was changed by by an American prisoner and by a girl he never met. So stay with me. It's going to be a great time. Right now, though, let's get to today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, January 22nd. It's the Feast of St. Vincent Pilate. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. Former President Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley are the last two standing as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis drops out of the race for the White House. University of Florida Director of Debate Dr. Gil Carter says many upset over potential Trump-Biden rematch 
Well, he would be surprised if someone arises as a third-party candidate. That's something that we're all going to have to kind of watch and see is kind of that, that middle voter, that suburbanite voter who both parties want, but who doesn't like Biden and doesn't like Trump. Would they go to a third party? Carter says fighting off a third-party candidate could completely change the way Biden and Trump would campaign. A Hamas official says there's no chance of another hostage release after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected the Palestinian group's demand for a permanent ceasefire. More than 25,000 people have been killed in Gaza, and Netanyahu has vowed that Hamas will be destroyed. The Supreme Court will hear a death row challenge from an Oklahoma man convicted in a murder-for-hire plot. Richard Glops' execution was put on hold last year while his case worked through the legal system. The Oklahoma City trial has been long and controversial since it hinged on the testimony of a drug addict who cut a plea deal with prosecutors. The Supreme Court has also granted the Biden administration's request to remove physical barriers and help illegal immigrants who are struggling to cross the Rio Grande. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined the court's three liberal members in the ruling. Elon Musk is in Poland, where he'll take part in a panel about online anti-Semitism and will tour the concentration camps in Auschwitz. Musk recently faced criticism in November by endorsing a false conspiracy theory about Jewish people on his social media site X, formerly known as Twitter. From your AviMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. My guest is T. Martin Bennett, father of five, an entrepreneur, a lover of history and true stories. He spent 18 years conducting research and refining the book Wounded Tiger and hopes to bring this remarkable story uh, to the the big screen. Um, Good to meet you, Martin. Thank you. Brian, thank you so much for having me on your show. Let, let's let's just start. I mean, this is a wild story, and it's 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 one of those stories that I don't I don't think people have any a clue about. So let's let's begin with uh, the commander, uh, the Japanese commander, um, it, Mitsuo Fushida. Is that the way it's pronounced? Yeah, it's close enough. Fushida, probably. Good. Mitsuo Fushida is the way we say it in English. Who who was he? Well, he was a rising star in the Imperial Japanese Navy. Um, like his comrades, he was driven by national ambition and by selfish ambition. He wanted to be a superstar. And he did achieve that as far as he could go in the Imperial Japanese Navy, being handpicked by Admiral Yamamoto to ultimately lead the attack on Pearl Harbor, which began the Pacific War for the United States. Now, how did you get access to his story? Well, I love history. I love true stories. And uh, I, I, have, I purchased biographies, and I, I got a hold of a book that, from uh, a defunct publisher, an out-of-print book on his life, and I really had very low expectations because <laughs> I know quite a bit of World War II history. I know a lot of redemption stories as a believer. Sure. I never heard anything about this guy's life, and so I had low expectations, like I said. But as I started to go through the material, uh, I started to realize this this looks like it could be one of the most phenomenal unheard stories of the entire, of all of World War II. Mm. And uh, I, I just was, I was just amazed by the story. The, the more I researched, the better it got. 
and I really had a very specific vision to see this as a feature film. So I spent about three years researching his story. And, of course, the story of Wounded Tiger involves not just him. It also involves an American prison, excuse me, an American uh, bombardier who was in the U.S. Air Force, so to speak, bombed Japan about six months after the Pearl Harbor attack. But his plane ran out of fuel. He became a prisoner of war, and he was in solitary confinement, tortured, uh, just lived in hell on earth. Uh, but slowly, uh, the Lord started to speak to him. And then there's a third plot line, which is the Covell family. They were highly educated teachers and missionaries who lived in Japan. They loved the Japanese people, but when Japan was starting to ramp up for war, they needed to get out. So they got a job speak, uh, teaching at a school in the Philippines, and then they sent their children off to the United States. Meanwhile, the Japanese did attack Pearl Harbor, and they attacked the Philippines. And so that's the three plot lines that eventually come together in a way that's absolutely, I mean, it's mind-boggling. If it were not true, it would make a bad story, because <laughs> it's just too far out. But it is true, as they say, truth is stranger than fiction, Bryant. Uh, that's the way it is with this story, and it has uh, just a phenomenal ending as well. I'm not saying this because I, I like the book, which I do. I'm saying if you go online and look up Wounded Tiger on Amazon, you'll see reviews saying things like, this may have been the most extraordinary story I've ever read in my life. Yeah. I've had many reviews like that. So the cool thing about it is, if you are a believer, it's, it's phenomenally inspiring. But if you are a skeptic, it's incredibly intriguing. I've had many people who are not of faith at all read the book front to back and want to converse with me about the story. Mm -hmm. So it, it has those two elements. Well, let's let's uh, let's uh, continue on with the characters. Uh, Commander Mitsuo Fujita uh, is re he is regarded as a hero in Japan. Does he uh, continue to fly through the war? Well, he you know yeah he was a, a superstar superhero after directly after the Pearl Harbor attack because they never expected. To, to experience such an incredible triumph, because the Americans were asleep at the wheel, they were not prepared, uh, they were not expecting anything like this to happen. So he became uh, a great star. But the uh, the Japanese strategy was a little bit um, unclear. They weren't really certain what their next targets were, and Fuchida was concerned that if they didn't come to a, a position of power over the Americans, the Americans would overwhelm the Japanese, and they only had a certain amount of time to do that. Yamamoto said the same thing. So the goal was to defeat the American Pacific Fleet in the Battle of Midway, and then negotiate terms favorable to Japan, essentially allowing the Japanese to hang on to the uh, Western Pacific from Hawaii West and allow the Americans to take Hawaii and everything, you know, back to the U.S. and the, and the continental U.S., so that's what they expected to happen, but of course it didn't happen that way. They they lost the Battle of Midway, and it, it just turned into one long series of defeats for the Japanese. The difficulty among the Japanese military was they had a code of ethics and standards, their own standard that is, that you either fight and win for the emperor or you fight and die for the emperor. But one thing you do not do is surrender. You don't surrender under any circumstances. So they just made the war a long, dragged-out a uh, long series of battles, hoping to kill as many Americans as possible to make the Americans want to just throw their hands in there and say, listen, we're tired of all this bloodshed. Give the Japanese whatever they want. We just want to go home. But unfortunately for the Japanese, the first words out of 
President Roosevelt's mouth after the Pearl Harbor attack was, we're demanding unconditional surrender. Right. So uh, these two things are diametrically opposed, and we know how it all ends. Um, well, it ends, of course, with the dropping of the atom bomb. Um, I'm just wondering if uh, uh, Mitsuo Fujito has anything to had anything to say about. Well, it, uh, yeah, he yeah. did. What's very very interesting about this story is not only was he the lead pilot in the attack on Pearl Harbor, he was uh, designated and selected to lead the Battle of Midway as well, and he was in Hiroshima. The day before they dropped the bomb, he was at a military conference. He receives a phone call. He needs to leave to go to another air base. And the next day, the city was bombed by the atomic bomb. His hotel was vaporized. 80,000, 90,000 people died within hours. Mm. And he comes back to Hiroshima the day after the bomb was dropped. He walks around in radioactive material for three days. And a month later, everyone on his search party, or nearly everyone, was dying of radiation sickness. And the hospital wanted to examine him. And so he goes to the hospital asking, what's this all about? And he sees that everyone is dying, but he was not dying at all. He didn't suffer any consequences from that. So his life was spared on multiple occasions that you'll see in the story that are true. And he had to start thinking, why am I still alive? He was not interested in the God of the, the Americans, but when he came across what happened to Jake DeShazer and how he um, realized he had lived in hatred and wanted to live in love, and he comes across the story of the Covell's daughter, who does some unbelievable loving acts toward the Japanese people, he starts asking questions, and his biggest question was, where does this love come from? And that journey is what brought him ultimately to faith. And it is really quite fascinating to see a person who is arguably the most unlikely person in the Pacific War to embrace the God of the Americans, or the God of, of, of you know, the God who is. Yes. And uh, how it all happens and transpires is absolutely mind-boggling. So tell us about uh, Jacob DeShazer. Jake came from uh, Oregon. His father was a farmer. He tried to make his way in the world, earning money in several jobs, and he couldn't earn money, and never, nothing really worked out, so he did what a lot of guys did in those days, and still today, he joined the Army signed up. Uh, then he uh, was trained in the U.S. Army Air Corps as a bombardier, the guy who sat in the nose of a twin-engine bomber, a B-25 uh, Mitchell bomber. And uh, then at, while he was training, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And he, like every red-blooded American male, said, I'm going to go out there and I would just want to kill Japs. Send mm -hmm. me, I'm going to go kill Japs. That was his thing. Right. So he volunteered for a mission he knew nothing about, which was the Doolittle Raids. Some people might know that. And uh, what that was, was the significance the of the Doolittle Raids? The Doolittle Raid was a tactical raid on Japan just to demonstrate to the Japanese that they are going to have to pay for this, that they're not going to get away scot-free. Yeah. The difficulty for the Americans was all their resources were being directed to the European theater because it was massive. That war was going on. And as far as dealing with the Japanese, they said it's going to be a year or two before we can build up a navy capable to go out there and conquering the Japanese. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the president was adamant that he wanted to do something to let the Japanese know, we are going to come for you, too. Yeah. So they put together this raid called the Doolittle Raiders, headed by a guy named Jimmy Doolittle. He was an MIT graduate and a stunt pilot in his earlier days, and was, he was a brilliant airman. And he devised a way to launch um, light bombers off of an aircraft carrier on a one-way trip from the carrier 
over Japan, bomb Japan, and then fly into unoccupied China because we were allies with the China, Chinese at that point, and then land. That was the mission. But uh, things didn't go the way they planned. They had to launch much earlier. They did bomb Japan. So these 16 bombers all bombed, I think, three or four different cities. And it was just to show the Japanese people and the military, hey, we can get to you if we yeah. want to, and you're going to be on our radar soon enough but right now we can't deal with it. Well, it was tremendously successful because the Japanese military and the emperor were really concerned about what had happened. Unfortunately for Jake Shazer and many of the pilots, because they had to um, take off early, he ran out of fuel and he had to bail out over-occupied China. And in the true story, uh, they realized they're running out of fuel. He was not a believer, and he realized he's got to jump out into the black of the night through a hatch in the bottom of this plane in the rain, and a good chance he was going to die. And he said to himself, well, this is the way I've lived my life. I guess this is the way I'm going to die. He jumps through this hatch over China, and at the same moment across the Pacific Ocean, his mother wakes up, elbows her husband, and tells him, hey, I've got to pray for Jake. I feel like I'm falling through the air. So she gets on her knees and starts praying for her son, and her son did survive that, that, uh, that night. And even though many of his buddies were executed or died of exposure, he came back home alive, and it was partly due to his mother praying for him. So that was just one of the supernatural things that happens in this story that Mm -hmm. just makes you wonder what is going on in the spiritual realm in our lives that we don't really know about. Yeah. Now, was he taken uh, into—did he become prisoner of war? Yeah, he was a prisoner of war, and he was a very valuable commodity because— the Japanese wanted to use these prisoners to negotiate with the United States because the U.S. Accord wanted their prisoners back, and it was an international news what's going to happen to these Doolittle Raiders. Yeah. Uh, they, they said they were going to kill them all, but they ended up executing some of them, but they didn't say who, and they wouldn't allow the uh, the Red Cross to come in there to take messages or to you know notify family, you, your son is alive or dead. They wouldn't allow that to take place. They didn't respect um, any of the international rules of law. They said, we do things the way we want to do it. Nobody tells us what to do. So mm-hmm. it was a real huge international thing. And for the for his family, they were very, very concerned about him. But the mother really got some words of knowledge of what was going on with her son more than once. And she tells her family, he's going to come back when everybody thought she was a bit crazy. And I guess she was crazy because <laughs> she was a woman of faith in a world that was not very believing at the time. <laughs> right. Well, we got about 60 seconds, um, and then we'll take a break. But start with, tell us about Peggy Covell a little bit. Peggy was a uh, a very simple person who lived her life uh, as a devout believer, but she was uh, she was more of an introverted person. And, and again, one of the most unlikely people you would think who would have an impact on the life of Puchita, but simple acts done in love can have huge consequences on the world. Martin, hold it there. We'll take a break. We'll come back and pick it up and learn about Peggy and the Covell family. My guest Thanks, is Martin Bennett. The book, Wounded Tiger, the true story of the pilot who led the Pearl Harbor attack, whose life was changed by an American prisoner and by a girl he never met. I'm Al Creston. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. If you've ever bought a plant at a garden center, you know most flowers and vegetables require at least six hours a day of direct sun. 
Sure, you can plant them in a shady spot without killing them, but it's not like they're going to thrive if you do. Well, researchers say that to really thrive, most families need 10 to 15 hours of working, playing, talking, and praying together every week. That's why family time is the foundation of the liturgy of domestic church life. If your family isn't getting enough time to connect, then it might be time to rearrange your schedule. You don't need to cancel everything that you're doing, but start scheduling regular appointments for family meals, prayer, and recreation a few months out, gradually building up to a healthier lifestyle. To learn more about living the liturgy of domestic church life, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I Can't Get No Satisfaction is a popular song, but it could be a summary of our life on earth. In the book of Genesis, we hear that we're made in the image and likeness of God. That means that we can know the truth and we can choose to do good to others. We can love. It comes to fulfillment in the Sermon on the Mount where we hear these Beatitudes. It's the standard of the Christian life. Jesus tells us that if we hear what he says and do what he tells us to do, we will be like wise people who build our house on solid rock. But we make progress towards happiness and blessedness by our actions, and it starts with our interior disposition, what we want to choose. Do you and I hunger and thirst for those things that will lead us to happiness and to God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We are 
learning an extraordinary story. It's uh, told by T. Martin Bennett in the book Wounded Tiger, the true story of the pilot who led the Pearl Harbor attack, whose life was changed by an American prisoner and by a girl he never met. We've been talking about Mitsuo Fushida, one of the most notorious villains in American history. Uh, He was the one who led the Pearl Harbor attack. We've also been talking about uh, Jacob DeShazer. He was a member of the Doolittle Raid who was captured by the Japanese after his B-25 bomber ran out of fuel over occupied China. And we were learning, as we closed out last segment, of Peggy Covell and her family. Uh, So let's pick that up and tell me a little more about Peggy and her family. Yeah, thanks so much, Al. Uh, so Peggy Covell was a very ordinary person and unassuming. No one would have ever predicted that she would have such an impact on the life of uh, Mitsuo Fuchida, especially herself. But what happened was she was hearing of terrible things happening to the people in the Philippines where her parents were uh, stationed, and she wanted to do the most loving thing she could for the Japanese people here in the United States. So she lived in, uh, she had graduated school in upstate New York, She volunteered to go out to internment camps where uh, Japanese-American citizens were being, you know, held. Yeah. uh, And that's very controversial how what went down there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, she wanted to just do anything she could help with them. So while she was out in Colorado volunteering to help American uh, Japanese nationals, uh, the call went out from Utah where there was a military hospital that had prisoners of war who were uh, being taken care of by the U.S. There were Germans there, and there were Japanese there. Because she spoke fluent Japanese and had a Red Cross certificate, uh, she was able to go to this hospital, and she volunteered to help these Japanese men. Well, over time, uh, they were just so impressed with how loving and and caring about them that she was, and they kept asking her, why are you here? You know, why are you doing this? And in Japanese culture, there's a very strong emphasis on obligation. When you're born, you have obligations to your parents, to your neighbors, to your family, to society, etc. And if somebody does something good for you, you're obligated to help them out. So they expected her to tell them some wonderful story about some wonderful thing that a Japanese person had done for her, and she's repaying the deed. But when they found out she was doing it because the Japanese were so horrible uh, to the Americans, they were, they were just dumbfounded. Mm. But they were highly impressed. So when one of these people ended up back in Japan or was returned as a prisoner of war after the war, he, it turns out this man was Fuchida's engineer, the guy who worked on his aircraft. And Fuchida met him, and Fuchida asked him all these questions. And when he heard about the story of Peggy Covell, he was fascinated and confused. Why would you love your enemies? He said, you know, we kill our enemies. We, we destroy our enemies. We don't love our enemies. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense to me. But he does say later on, and I, I include this in the story, that in his heart he felt that she was right to love her enemies, but he didn't really quite understand why. Mm-hmm. So he searched to find a Bible. He ended up getting a just a New Testament, and um, eventually he came around, and then he started telling his story, which was sent shockwaves in Japan, of who is the, the guy who led the attack on Pearl Harbor is talking about the God of her enemies? Why would he do that? So the story is, uh, it, it is... It is an unbelievable story. The book is 600 pages long, but it has over 300 photos, maps, letters, images of all kinds. And I've had multiple people tell me they read the entire book in a single sitting because (laughs) they just couldn't stop reading it. And if you look at the reviews on Amazon of Wounded Tiger, you'll see people said this is a page turner. I couldn't stop reading it. And one of the reviews says exactly what I just said. 
the guy said, once I started reading it, I just could not stop till I finished the book. You know, it's like I think five or six hours later, he just couldn't stop reading the book. But uh, it's it's amazing to me that um, Fushida ends up making presentations uh, from Pearl Harbor to Calvary. So he had a pretty deep conversion. Oh yeah, he did. But like most people, his journey was slow. It wasn't it wasn't a lightning bolt. It was a slow and steady growing mm-hmm. light in his life. And you'll see in the story, I don't want to give things away here, but there's some surprise of like, wow, oh man, this guy's got to deal with these things. So in, in the Christian life, it's kind of like coming into the promised land. Uh, you, the land belongs to you, but these cities have to be conquered one at a time, and there was a very big city in his life, which should not have been there, which he had to take care of, and you'll see that in the story. But uh, he was absolutely genuine and authentic. I met a man who traveled with him. Uh, the man has since passed away, but he told me with tears in his eyes, he said that, you know, Fuchida was, had a, such a deep love for other people, it was just amazing. <laughs> and he was, you know, you mentioned he was a minister. He was actually was an evangelist. That was his calling, that was his gift. And if you go to YouTube, there's a, a video of him on the Merv Griffin show being interviewed, <laughs> and it's kind of interesting. I and he's very that. overt about his faith on the show as well. Yeah, I'll ha- I will take a look at that. Now, uh, Jacob DeShazer, how does he begin to fit into this storyline with the... Well, as I mentioned, he wanted revenge against the Japanese like most Americans did, Sure, but he, was, he had the opportunity to carry out that revenge. His plane bombed a city in Japan. They, then they were flying to their base their, to be you know to land the craft, but it was they had they had launched early, so they ran out of fuel. He bails out. He gets captured by the Japanese. He and his men and many of the other Doolittle Raiders, the other Doolittle Raiders who got captured by the Japanese, are put in solitary confinement. Go through mock trials. They had to sign papers admitting guilt that they'd done all kinds of crimes which they didn't do, but the documents were written in Japanese. Um, they were. You know, they had horrible conditions where one of his buddies just died of exposure. And in his own words, Jake DeShazer said he was crazy with hatred toward the Japanese. He just wanted to kill them all. And then he realized, I don't want to be this kind of a person anymore. I don't want to be just filled with hatred. I don't want my life to be nothing but hatred. And that's what it was. And he remembered his mother. And this is just a, you know, it's a shout out to the, all the moms out there. You don't realize how powerful an influence you are in the family, mm-hmm. except when people really need you. And so he realized his mother was an example of love for God and forgiveness, kindness. And so he wanted to find out what it meant to be a Christian. And uh, they circulated some books in the prison. He got a copy of the Bible, and he just read it voraciously, but very skeptically. And finally he said, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and do what God says and see what happens. And and what happened was a number of supernatural things happened in his life, and they continue to happen, of like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. And he thought, okay, this is the way I want to live. I'm going to love people. So after the war, he ends up a missionary in Japan. He spent uh, 20, 30 years just serving the Japanese people. Did he ever meet uh, Mitsuo Fushida? He did meet him after the war, and uh, there's a picture of the two of them in the book. Uh, they weren't like best friends, but they did speak, share the platform in Japan on num- a number of occasions <laughs> and telling this story. So here's the takeaway from this whole story, Al. You know, the world is full of war. It always has been full of war. There's war in the Middle East. Nobody has any solutions. 
Nobody right. has any solutions. But right. in Wounded Tiger, you see a demonstration of the solution. Here's one man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor who despised the Americans to the point that he thought it was the happiest day of his life to bomb Pearl Harbor. You have another guy who says he was crazy with hatred toward the Japanese, just wanted to kill Japanese. How did these two men become friends? Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah. And what can we learn from it? That's very good. That's, that's very good. Where is about? Um, you know, do does does uh, does Jacob ever see uh, Peggy Covell? I don't believe that Jake Shazer ever saw Peggy Covell. Okay. You have to understand, she was a very private person before, during, and after the war, and Petita yeah. never met her either. Oh, okay. Uh, he did reach out to her, but she never really, I mean, she was just a very private person. So um, the reason for that privacy is explained at the end of the book, and you'll, you'll know why. But uh, no, he never talked to her. But uh, all that to say is simple acts done in love and kindness for others can have a monumental impact on the entire planet. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for Peggy's acts of reaching out and serving her enemies in the USA, we wouldn't be on the phone today, and her story wouldn't be out in, you know, 100,000 copies of this book. I mean, she, she just really did some amazing things. And, of course, you know, I think you mentioned at the beginning that we want to get the film made, and that's absolutely yes. front and center. I'm meeting with a potential investor next week. We want to get this film done because it's interesting, it's, a, it's, it's compelling, it's entertaining, it's dramatic, but it also can be life-changing, and that's what we want to see. Uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, I mean, getting the, the film made. It, I mean, it's a powerful story. And I think it would it would it really does read. Did you read the whole book? No, or just some of the no, book? I did not read the whole book. But do you have a copy? Yes, I do. I do. Okay, because um, I would send you one if you didn't. Yeah, no, I've got yeah. one okay, here. Keep going. It is it's a cinematic story. When you it read, absolutely, you can tell it's absolutely is. Cinematic. Yeah, and so I'm just wondering uh, what kind of creative control can you maintain uh, when you you know meet with the studio guys. Yeah, so that's the $125 million question. So I've had three offers to fund this film, and they were all secular, and they all believed that the film would be commercially viable, but I had to decline that offer because if I sign the offer, that means I can't protect the integrity of the story. They can add, delete, change, whatever they want. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus Christ turns into higher power. There's a sex scene. All (laughs) kinds of crazy things can happen. So uh, eventually the producer of Hacksaw Ridge, one of the key producers of Hacksaw Ridge, called me up asked what was going on with the film. We talked at great length. I met with him in person twice in L.A. He said, Martin, if you want to create a control of the film, get the book out far and wide, and then that's when the investors will come to you. If the money is on your side of the table, then you can partner with any studio you want. You can produce the film the way you want it, and you'll retain creative control. So that is what we're trying to do right now is bring the right investors into the project who get what this is about, love the story, and want to see the story as written on the page end up on the screen, and that can only happen if the money is on our side of the table. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious, do you have any idea of how, say, things go well, uh, and next week you have investors, uh, how long does it take to take a story like this? Uh, well, I'd say a, the fastest, I mean, if, we, if, this fun, if this film was fully funded by the end of the month, I'd say two years would be the fastest, three years is probably what it would take. Yeah. There's a lot of details in this story, and I think if you've read even, you know, three or four chapters, you'll know yeah. there's a lot of details here. It's also a period piece, which means everything has to be done, uh, you know, period correct. And, of course, there's a lot of big military set pieces, which means a lot of, you know, computer-generated 
information, CGI, visual effects and everything, all that has to be done. It will be an expensive film. It will take time. And we want it to be absolutely excellent, A to Z. It's not about getting it done quickly. It's about getting it done with excellence. Uh, Let me ask a question uh, dealing with morality and ethics here. Did uh, Mitsuo Fushida ever express an opinion about the morality of the U.S. Uh, using the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and absolutely. Nagasaki. What did he, he say? Did. So I try not to have too many giveaways, but I, I will give this giveaway here. So what happened was he was in Hiroshima literally the day after the bomb was dropped to figure out exactly what kind of bomb it was and what the damage was and should we be afraid of more of these bombs being dropped, etc. He's on this uh, investigation party. Anyway, one kind of, of the bomb. guys said to Fujita, he said, why... How could the Americans use this bomb on us? And Pachita said, if we had the bomb, we w- I would have been glad to use it on the Americans. Okay. Martin. That was his answer. This is war. Great making your acquaintance. And I hope we talk again. Thank you. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844 398 9399. That's 844 398 9399. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. That idea of suffering is one of the reasons many people either turn away from God or they ignore faith altogether because they cannot comprehend or wrap their heads around suffering and all the suffering in the world. This is an issue for you, and it's, it's an issue for all of us from time to time when we go through rough situations, to say, Lord, what do you want me to learn about suffering? Ask the Lord to help you understand the meaning of suffering. God doesn't waste his time with anything. Whatever you go through, he will use if you allow him to use it. And you look at the greatest evil, right? The killing of God, Jesus, the Son of God on the cross. And what came out of that? Our salvation. 
Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Which of the seven sacraments has been especially instituted by Christ to aid those who are being tried by serious illness? It is the sacrament called the anointing of the sick. This sacrament was particularly promulgated by the Apostle James, who said, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the priests of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Over the centuries, the sacrament came to be used on those who were dying, and was called extramunction. But in this day and age, it is seen not as a sacrament strictly for those who are near death, but also those who are gravely ill, in the hope they will recover. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Sunday marked three years since Pope Francis declared Jerome Lejeune to be venerable. Lejeune was a pioneering Catholic scientist in the field of genetics, in fact. Um, He had discovered in 1958 that Down syndrome is caused by an extra copy of chromosome 21. He actually became the first to correlate a disability to a genetic anomaly. Uh, So he indeed was a real pioneer. Uh, My guest, Mark Bradford, is the Jerome Lejeune Fellow for Persons with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities at the Word on Fire Institute. For over 20 years, he's been blessed to serve in leadership positions in various church ministries, including as the founding president of the Jerome Lejeune Foundation in the United States. Mark and his wife, Denise, are parents to Thomas, their sixth child and first son, who happens to have been gifted with an extra 21 chromosome. Mark is a passionate advocate for those born with intellectual and developmental disabilities in their families, and he especially advocates against the threat of abortion following a prenatal diagnosis. Mark, uh, good to make your acquaintance. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So it's it's not on you. I mean, some people might think that um, the Catholic Church uh, is not interested in science. But, of course, as you know, uh, the Catholic Church has a long history of outstanding and pioneering Catholic scientists and medical professionals. Uh, and so Jerome Lejeune is right in that line. Um Tell me a little bit about him. When was he born? Sure. Uh, Jerome Lejeune was a, a Frenchman born just outside of Paris in a suburb on the 13th of June in 1926. Okay. So he had a pretty interesting upbringing. You know, they were war years there when he was fairly young. And uh, his father, at one point, out of concern for his safety and for his brother's safety, brought them home and schooled them at home in what we would now call a classical education, I would say. They were they were surrounded by classic texts, and Jerome Lejeune developed a real interest in medicine, I think, during that time from one of the novels that he was reading about a, a French country doctor hmm. and decided to pursue medicine. So that sort of set him off on his path to eventually become the medical researcher and physician that he was. 
tell us about his achievement. What was he best known for? Well, he was best known, as you said, Al, for his discovery in 1958 that Down syndrome is caused by an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Many people don't realize that was just one discovery, and it was the most significant, which you said, you know, congratulations on your description of this. You've done far better than most people do uh, in his discovery that really set off this whole field of cytogenetics yeah. for the first time tied a genetic anomaly to a, a condition that had previously been unable to be described. But he also discovered uh, what's called Creutzfeldt syndrome, which is fairly uh, well-known. It's also called 5P minus syndrome. 18Q minus syndrome was another discovery of his. He discovered trisomies on chromosomes 9 and chromosome 8. For people who don't know what a trisomy is, it's trisomy is the technical word for having an extra chromosome. Mm-hmm. So we okay. typically have two chromosomes, uh, well, a pair of chromosomes for 26, right? So we have one contributed by the father, one contributed by the mother, and for some reason the fertilization, something goes slightly wrong, and an extra chromosome is carried over into the new life that begins to grow and then develops into an individual with in, in trisomy 21, uh, Down syndrome, of course, or Edwards syndrome or Patau syndrome and the other more common trisomies on trisomy on uh, chromosome 18 and chromosome 13. Well, did he determine um, to prove that Down syndrome had a genetic cause? Is that, was that his hypothesis? Is that was, was that what he was trying to do? Yes. It was what he was trying to do. We have the term Down syndrome from John Langdon Down, who first described this syndrome of characteristics that were typical among this group of people that no one knew the cause for. And when he was a young physician, he was placed into the medical practice of a a doctor named Raymond Torpin, and he had several patients who had Down syndrome. And Jerome Lejeune became very curious about the cause of it and noticed some distinctive similarities, like the patterns in the palms of their hands and other things that he thought revealed that there was really a deeper uh, uh, genetic cause of Down syndrome. So you're exactly right. He set out to prove that, and that technique of being able to count the number of chromosomes became available uh, in the early to mid-1950s, and that technique is what was used to finally uh, discover that there was an extra copy of the 21st chromosome in those individuals with Down syndrome. This kind of discovery, I mean, it's easy to imagine that he could have received a Nobel Prize for it. Was he ever uh, nominated for a Nobel Prize for this? It was rumored that he should have been. You know, he was. he became immediately... Famous, I think you could say. In 1962, he came to the United States and received the first Kennedy Prize from John F. Kennedy at the White House. In 1969, he uh, received the highest award that a geneticist could receive, called the William Allen Memorial Award that was given in San Francisco. And that night, he made what became a pretty legendary speech for him. It was called uh, To Kill or Not to Kill. And in that speech, he condemned the National Institutes for Health, saying that they should become the National Institutes for Death Mm. because of their support for abortion after the discovery that a child carried 
an extra chromosome or any other genetic anomaly. So amazingly, you know, this man who was feted all over the world for his discoveries, quite well-known, quite famous, was received into this crowd of people at the beginning of the evening with open arms and welcoming and accolades. And when he came down off of the days after his acceptance speech, he was in absolute silence. No one applauded. People didn't really even acknowledge him in any kind of way. He had a habit of when he was traveling, he would write to his wife, Beert, every evening on that neat, old-fashioned sort of airmail paper that we don't see anymore in the days of email. But he wrote to her that night that he said that he had thought he had probably lost his Nobel Prize because he had condemned his own profession for the way that they were using his discovery. Wow. Wow. And so that uh, that still uh, obscures his contribution in the eyes of uh, mainstream um, genetics? I mean, he's, he's the father of modern genetics, for heaven's sake. That's Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is, because his contribution was so significant. He came to be called the father of modern genetics. That's exactly right. Um, and he's still in the record books as a person having made that discovery. There have been some challenges to that over the time that have been unsubstantiated. But he is the person who made that discovery in 1958, along with the team and the practice that he was working with. Mm-hmm which included Dr. Raymond Turpin, who I previously mentioned, and also a woman researcher named Marc Gauthier. But the discovery was his. He's in the record books as having made that discovery. He went from being very well-known and very much requested at scientific congresses around the world to receiving fewer and fewer invitations to do that because, because of his outspokenness about uh, the proper use of his discovery, the proper use of genetics, and the limitations that medicine had. Um, medicine's role was to cure, not to kill, as right. he always said. And he was very condemning of those who wanted to use their profession and distort the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, to seek out to destroy individuals that were uh, that, who possessed these, these uh, genetic anomalies or uh, you know, differences, genetic differences in their chromosomal nature. So as his requests for speaking at scientific congresses diminished, though, he did become a very outspoken pro-life advocate and advocated many times on behalf of pro-life causes. He was called to the United States, actually, to Maryville, Tennessee, where there was a case of a couple who had divorced, who had several frozen embryos on ice. They'd gone through in vitro fertilization procedures to create these embryos who were frozen and the wife wanted to have them destroyed and the man did not want them destroyed. And there was an attorney named Martin Palmer who knew of Jerome Lejeune and called him in Paris and asked if he could come right away to the United States to give testimony in this trial, which he did. And the judge listened to Lejeune in his testimony and it was Lejeune's testimony that caused the woman to lose the case and to the to preserve the lives of the embryos. Wow. He later wrote a book about that called The Concentration Can, sort of an obvious play on words there. Yeah, yeah. But he, he decried the technique of in vitro fertilization that created these beings outside of the marital embrace and put them on ice and left them there on hold until someone would decide they wanted to try to give them life after implanting them. He's now been declared venerable, and so um, yes. you don't get called venerable just because you're a brilliant scientist. Um, talk to no. me about the cultivation of virtue in his life. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I mentioned the way that he was raised and, and a big contribution of the way that he was raised. In fact, if you ask people who are involved in the classical education movement now, they say it's to cultivate wisdom and virtue. And that's what his education really did for him. He was a very devoted Catholic, um, very well read. People said that he could read Latin like some people read the newspaper. He was <laughs> very, very well educated. And that life of commitment to the truth is what caused him to be such a staunch and persistent advocate for life at great personal expense. So he 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 never cared for his own safety, really, you know, during the Paris riots in the 1960s. He just went in and talked with the kids who were revolting in the universities and not concerned with his own safety. He tried to settle the waters there. He, uh, again, just defended life on television and whatever media was available at the time. His daughter, Clara Lejeune Gamar, wrote a wonderful book about their life called Life is a Blessing, a little short biography of her dad. And in that, she recounts a time when they were, she and her sister, Karen, were riding their bicycles home from school, and they saw spray painted on a wall, Death to Lejeune and His Little Monsters. Oh. And they were so upset, you know, and many times they would be upset when his father when their father was challenged or when someone was speaking out against them very harshly and Lejeune was always careful to say to them we have to remember that we're fighting against the ideas not against the people mm-hmm. and he always took rather than make it an ad hominem attack on the individuals himself he always turned that around respected the individual but he criticized the false ideas that the individuals possessed that they were trying to promote so in every way the church is proven and reviewing all of these hundreds and hundreds of letters and, and scientific papers and volumes and volumes of writings that he did, uh, they determined that in all of that he always acted with what the Church calls heroic virtue, which qualified him to be declared by Pope Francis of Interval on January 21st, 2021. And uh, are we awaiting the performance of uh, miracles now? We are. We are. So everyone out there listening, pray. Yeah. Uh, if there's a situation that you know of where a child's life is in danger or any situation, pray, invoke the intercession of the Venerable Jerome Lejeune. Yeah. And there's a, actually a site with the cause called, in French, it's Ami Lejeune. So it's A M I S L E J E U N E dot O R G. And that's the website for the process of the adaptation for Lejeune and their ways to make contact with the postulator there. Very good. We'll have that uh, listed on our uh, website so people can get it. Mark, thanks for taking the time to be with me. I hope we can talk again. Thank you. Great. Appreciate it. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. Here's the new challenge. At least one hour a week in front of the Blessed Sacrament with the goal of an hour a day in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I had a guy come up to me and he says, Father, you know, I'm doing a lot of things. I'm, 
I'm in a men's fellowship. I pray with my wife every day. I go to mass every Sunday and, and usually a couple times during the week. I read scripture. He goes, I want more. I said, do you pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament? He said, outside of mass, no. I said, I think that's the more. See, all these saints, these are the ones who surround us. These are the ones who ran before us. These are the ones who fought well, who kept the faith. They would tell you, as would every single saint in heaven right now, you cannot run this race if you don't spend time with the master. Whatever else we're doing, it's second, third, and fourth. First things need to be first. And the first thing is to be with the master. And the master is Jesus. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Well, thank you for being with me, and let me remind you that all the topics we discuss on this program, all the books that are mentioned, are available at AveMariaRadio.net. You can do, go to the uh, online bookstore there, and we'll have um, the books that were mentioned regarding uh, Jerome Lejeune, including uh, a new uh, biography written by Aud Dugast, uh, Jerome Lejeune, A Man of Science and Conscience. We'll have that available for you, too. It looks like an outstanding piece of work. And then uh, you can also follow up uh, with our conversations with Dr. Paul uh, Kengor and with Chad Garcia from the Alvin Maria Funds. We'll have follow-up information on all those topics, and certainly The Wounded Tiger uh, by Martin Bennett, uh, the book that we talked about, the remarkable story of uh, Mitsuo Fushida, the pilot who led the Pearl Harbor bombing. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.